Well, good morning, everybody. You didn't see anybody come up on stage during that, did you? That was really a very impressive like segue, wasn't it? Some, some of you are wondering, who in the world are those people, and why are they standing up on the stage? So if you were here uh, last week, I mentioned that through the month of January, we are taking some time to, to, to really prepare for what God's going to be doing over the next year. And uh, this morning is, is an extra important morning in the life of our church because we're going to do some, some family business. And, and part of that is uh, sometimes uh, when I refer to leadership, I say elders and staff and council. And you go, okay, that's just a group of people and I have no idea who they are. And uh, you can go on the website and see staff and things like that. But I wanted to one of the things I want to do just briefly this morning is... For you to see who our leaders are, so you know who's leading the church, and, and so just kind of really briefly, kind of how we function as a church family. So we have really three kind of entities that make up our leadership, and I'll real quickly go down the line on who's who here in a moment. But we have our elders, which provide covering, the spiritual covering for a church through prayer and participating in, in various aspects of ministry. Then we have the church council, which governs, which basically is accountable for the finances and the budget. And then we have the staff that operates and, and shepherds the church. And so those three groups together are our leadership that help to, to lead the church where we believe God is leading us. So I wanted you to see leaders. I'm just going to quickly go down down the row here. Wow, you guys, like now there's two tiers. This is impressive. So, so, so you know who it is. So uh, I'll start in the front here. So Tim and Stacy Hess, most of you know who Tim is, and Tim is always up front. He's our worship leader and our youth pastor, along with Stacy, who's also our youth pastor and our children's director. They do quite a lot. Her title is, is Next Gen Pastor, which covers a lot of things. And so John Looney is our associate pastor. Uh, and then uh, Jerry and Tracy Davis have just recently become elders. Uh, so they're part of the elder. Then uh, Bob and Debbie Brooks are currently elders. Uh, Bob just stepped off being on the church council, and they've done a lot and continue to do a lot. And then Don Denton is representing John and Don. Uh, John's at work today. Uh, we all know John Denton, don't we? Everybody's <laughs> got to know John Denton. So, But uh, they are uh, elders as well. And then we have the Egglestons, Tim and Margaret, who are as well uh, elders. And then Lisa Pachifici, she's on our church council. And then then that lady out there, that's my beautiful wife, and she's on staff as well and does a lot of things behind the scenes. Wow, she's getting whistles and everything. So, and then the back row, those people who didn't want to be up front, you can see they're hiding. Uh, Michael and Shauna Sevalero. Michael is on the church council. And then next to them is Rita and Wally Wolf. And, uh, and uh, I'll tell you so as well. Um, Wally is a uh, council member, and uh, uh, Rita and Wally are elders. And the reason we do that is that there's always two members that are both elders and council to create accountability for those two groups so that there's overlap. So those two groups are always hearing the same information from me. So if I'm in a meeting and I say one thing and they say, well, you didn't say that to the council. I have two people to help me make sure we're all on the same page. So, uh, and as well, actually, Mike and Vicki Flack are in the same role. They are elders, and Mike is on the church council, and they carry that, Mike carries that dual role. And then uh, Monica James is our primary administrator and bookkeeper. And if you call the church office, that's the lovely voice that you hear. And then uh, Lindsay Zaffron oversees our facility, which is an impossible task, and uh, will be much better when we move. So, and then Harold Franklin, everybody knows Harold, right? <laughs> Harold is over our media, and he plays drums and does a lot of stuff behind oh the scenes. <laughs> All right, so anyway, I just wanted you to be aware of that, and also wanted you, if you could, this group of people really cares deeply for what God is doing in a church, cares deeply for you, and would you just say thank you to them for the things that maybe you don't even see that they do, and the things that we are part of our church, so thank you guys. So you can head back to your seats. Wow, you're getting a standing ovation. This is good. So.
So a- another point of kind of family business. So if you're visiting today, you're either getting a lot of understanding about what, who we are as a church and how we function, or you're thinking, why in the world did I pick this Sunday to visit, right? Uh, but there's really important things about our future and where we're headed that we're going to cover this morning. So I'm going to ask uh, if Marilyn Hostetler and Ed Wilcox could come and join me. And right now, the ushers, go ahead, ushers, are handing out to you. Everybody take one, please. What you'll have in front of you is, it says, Church Council Ratification. Uh, let me explain what's happening. So I just mentioned uh, our three kind of leadership circles, and one of those being church council. Uh, the structure, you guys can come over right here. The structure of our church council is we have, other, in addition to me, there are six members of the council, and each one of those members serves a three-year term. And in that, so that means every year, two transition off and two new ones transition on. So the way that we, we are, we're governed, the way that we function is that those uh, incoming council members, uh, I bring names to the church council, we discuss it, and then the church council actually appoints them, and then we come to, to the congregation for you to ratify. Now let me explain what that means, okay? Ratification is not po- a popular vote, okay? What ratification is, it's a simple agreement or confirmation of what the church council has already decided. Um, and so what that means is that you don't see like, okay, I'm voting for this person. I'm voting against that person. It's not, that, it's not set up. It's not a presidential election. It's a confirmation or ratification. And I'll explain a little bit more in a moment when you, we have the ballot in front of us. So uh, Marilyn Hostetler is involved in a lot of areas of our church. Um, she is a special education teacher with Simi Valley School District. Um, she's leading a, a community group and is involved with youth a lot in our church and has done was part of the Haiti team um, and is very well qualified to be on the church council. Uh, Ed Wilcox as well, longtime uh, part of the church, and uh, he works for a company that he oversees. Uh, he doesn't work at McDonald's. He oversees McDonald's. Uh, so don't ask him to get you fries. Uh, so, but he actually does. He, he oversees uh, the maintenance and as well some of the, the, the staffing at a number of different McDonald's and the corporation that he works for. So as well, and as well, he and his wife Penny are involved in a lot of different things. They lead a community group and are very involved in what God's doing in the church. So both, of, uh, both Marilyn and Ed are very well, well qualified to be a part of our church council to provide, provide that overall accountability and finances and our budgeting, um, as well as they help to shape some of the ministry decisions. So the ballot that you have in front of you, I'm going to pray in just a moment. Let me explain so you know how to fill this out properly, okay? On the top, it says member, non-member, okay? Everybody gets to be a part of the ratification. If you're wondering what a member is, we don't have official membership, but many, historically, you've been a part of the seasons of the church where you have signed a document that says you're a member. That means you are a member currently. Uh, And since I've been here, since we really, our commitment, we want people to be committed to Jesus. Part of that is being committed to the church. If you currently give regularly, attend regularly, and you serve in some capacity, you qualify as a member. Okay? If, if you don't fall into any of those categories, then you can check non-member. Now, your vote is not binding, but we do like to know what non-members think about the ratification process. So everybody gets a chance to vote. So let me explain what we're doing here. Okay? This is not a popular vote, as I explained. It's very important. There are two responses. The first one is I agree with the Church Council of New Hope Christian Fellowship in the selection of Marilyn Hostetler and Ed Wilcox to serve on the Church Council for a term of three years. So if you are in agreement and you think, yes, Maryland's qualified, Ed's qualified, I agree with the church council that they should do this, then you check that box. The second one is if for some reason you disagree. Now let me explain this. It's kind of like when you go to a wedding and they say, you know, if anyone knows for any reason why this, you know, these two should not be, you know that part? 
or forever hold your peace. That's kind of what this is. And the reason we do this, and we've, I've done this in the churches that I pastor, if for some reason there's something that we were unaware of as leadership in the process for both Marilyn and Ed that we should be made aware of in terms of their qualifications, we want to be made aware of that. But that means if you say, I disagree, there's some accountability that comes with that. You will need to write your name down and your contact information because you will need to come and sit down with me and with one of our leadership to explain why you have an objection to either one of them being a part of the process. Does that make sense? Everybody clear on that? So this is ratification. We just want to make sure we feel confident. We've prayed. We've trusted the Lord. We think that they're qualified. We just want to make sure that we're all in unity on that. Okay? We got it? So this is what you're going to do. You're going to check member, non-member, or you're going to check agree or disagree. And then you're going to fold your ballot in half. After I pray, you'll go ahead and pass it to the aisle, and the ushers will collect it. So let's pray for Ed and Marilyn this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Ed and Marilyn's willingness to say yes to this new role. And Lord, we, we always desire to do your will, to follow, Lord, your leading. And so we believe, Lord, that both for Marilyn and for Ed, that you have uh, not only qualified them, but Lord, in this season, you've prepared them for this role. And so, Lord, we ask that you would guide us as we move forward in this and that you would equip them by the power of your Holy Spirit in every aspect of their lives, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. So go ahead and pass your ballots to the... We can do it like we do the baskets. You can go this way. The ushers will intercept it when it gets there and make sure that they, they collect that. So as you are doing that, there's a couple of things before we're going to actually eventually jump into... We'll start, our starting point will be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at uh, just one verse there, verse 17. Uh, but before we get there, I want to just briefly just take a couple minutes to do something that most people think, oh, really, do we have to do that? And yeah, we really need to do that as a point of accountability. So I want to just briefly, I mean very briefly, uh, take a look, quick look from, since we're in 2015, we just finished 2014, uh, financially where we are as a church. Uh, This is important for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is I've been here for almost two years, and if you were here two years ago, you know that as we walked through that transition, we went through a substantial financial crisis. And over the last, that, the 2013 and then in 2000, this last year, 2014, we've seen God, through your generosity and faithful giving, bring a huge turnaround, as well as the church council and staff's ability to cut down on our expenses. So we've seen an amazing turnaround. So it's been important. But I wanted you just to see uh, where we are as a church in terms of our finances. So uh, you can go put, put the first slide up. What you see there is just a simple pie chart of our income from last year. Okay, and I'll explain what the breakdown is. So last year we brought in $1.4 million. That's a lot of money. Wouldn't you agree? You're like, wow, what could I do with $1.4 million, right? But I wanted you to see the breakdown of where that came from. So the biggest piece of the pie, 60% of that, is what we call missions and giving. That means when you give tithe or you give to missions, like you give to Haiti or Brazil or anything that we're doing mission-wise, that makes up that primary chunk. That's the majority. Within that is where we draw our, our operating budget for the year is from your tithe. It's your, your giving. Missions goes right to missions. It doesn't come into any operations or things like that. So when did you see that? Right-sized giving made up 28% of our income last year. And then 12% of our income comes from other things. Primarily, that is rental income that comes in from... There's a Spanish congregation that uses our building. And now that we've purchased the building on runway, we bring in another $10,000 a month of rental income from the tenant that's on the other side of the building from us. So, so that's the other the income. So I wanted you to see that. So you can now flip to the, to the next slide, which is our expense. So all that money came in. Where did it go? That's the question. Where's the money, right? Here it is. Our total expense for 2014 was 1,086,879.55. 
So you can see that means we had a net income of 394,227. That's good. That means we're in the black. That means that we spent less than we received. That's a good thing. And uh, knowing that, that, that a lot of expenses are going out with right size and different things, so you know that we ended the year with nearly $100,000 in our bank account, in our reserve bank account, not designated to specific things that we're paying off. So that's pretty amazing considering how much money's come in, how much money's had to go out for right size. So let me explain. This is a very important reference point for our future. So when you look at the slide, you see 35% of our income, our expenses, goes to facility. That stinks. It does. That's money currently right now because of this building, money that we won't see any return on because we've been leasing this building and everything that we put into it, we don't get to draw out from it. So when we move on beyond that, when you see 33% is personnel. Uh, that's actually a good number because Foursquare, our denomination, requires that we keep that under 40%. We're under 40%. We have done a good job. In fact, the last two years, we've, we've cut down our staff so that our staff is a lot smaller than it used to be so we can keep our personnel costs low. 11% of our expense so far this year is for right size, or for 2014 was for right size expenses as we continue to move forward. And then you'll see discipleship and mission is 17%, and then administrative costs are 4%. Now, why I said that's a reference point is I want you to log this in your mind for the future. Because our goal as a church over time is to take that big green chunk, the facility, and reduce that substantially while increasing the one that says discipleship and mission to much larger. Because that's about who we are. My goal is I would desire to see that one day the mission and discipleship piece of the pie will be 51%. And everything else will fall in behind it. That means that we're going to have to really get focused on mission and simplifying our expenses, which we always are. So I wanted you to see that because, because of your faithful giving. So just so you understand, before we, we jump into 2 Corinthians here in a moment. So the way the church functions. So when we do offering on a Sunday morning... Some people, we don't, we don't understand the, the way that churches are structured. So when you give, like you say, okay, I'm going to tithe, which, by the way, tithing is 10% of your gross income that comes into your household. That's biblical tithe. That is normally the starting point of generosity and following Jesus. It is not mandated. It is not a law. It's not that somehow if you give 8.5%, you don't get into heaven. That's not the way it works. But it is a starting point because when you, and I will teach on this more in depth sometime, but in the New Testament, they didn't tithe. I've had people say, oh, tithe is an Old Testament principle. It doesn't apply to us. New Testament giving is more than tithing. Because when you read through the book of Acts, they weren't tithing. You know what they were doing? They were going out and selling their land and bringing all the money and giving it to the apostles for the work of the ministry. They were giving everything. They were probably giving 50, 60, 70, 80, some people 100%. And so we, we start as a church that tithing is kind of the starting point, which I give 10%, which is for a lot of us, like, that's a lot of money. But it's making a statement that I trust the Lord with my finances, therefore I can invest in what he's doing through the church locally and globally, so I can give to that. So I want you to understand, when you give a tithe, that is what keeps the church running. And more and more, we're trying to use that tithe to not only keep the church running, but along with the missions giving that we give and things that we give to the community and around the world, that we can use more and more of that tithe for mission and discipleship and not for all the operating expenses. So I want you to be aware of that so you realize that when you give, so like when you give to right size, this is really important. Sometimes, well, I, I, you know, I, I normally give and I tithe, but when, I, when we were going through right size, I, I, give, I gave all my money to right size. 
I want you to understand what happens. I don't know how much anyone's given. I never do. I don't look at giving records. That's not my, my job. My job is to help you follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus, then you'll be generous with what he's given you. But the point is, is if we just shift from our normal giving to like something like right size, then we may have a lot of money in right size, but we won't be able to keep the lights on. We may have a lot of money that's designated for specific things, but if we don't have the tithe, then a lot of times that impacts our bottom line and able to function. I want you just to understand this is kind of the inner workings of the way churches work and be very upfront with you. So think about that. When you're tithing, that's why we say, okay, we're asking you to give an offering over and above your tithe because that offering that you're giving is 100% designated to where we're asking you to give it to. So if we give money to the Samaritan Center, we take an offering, we can't keep a dime for ourselves. We can't do that. If we give to Haiti, we can't keep a dime for ourselves. That is designated for a specific purpose. So you understand that. Right size, I can't go pull out a right size and say, hey, we're going to pay the staff a bonus this month. Can't do that. It is designated specifically for the building process. So I just want us to understand. Some of you are thinking, really? Can you just get beyond the finances? So I just wanted to see that. That's where we are as a church. Thank you for your faithful giving. Thank you for your faithfulness to the church. God's doing amazing things. We're in the black. We're moving forward. We've bought a building. This is an exciting season. Would you agree? I'm, I'm really excited about what God's doing. So now even far more exciting than finances is where Jesus is leading us this next year. So if you have your Bibles, we're just going to briefly begin in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, but then we'll move uh, beyond that to a lot of different passages. So, so again, if you're visiting, you're, you're going to get probably information that you're, you weren't aware that you're going to get today, and, and this is really kind of the, the one message this year where I really want to set the tone for where we're heading as a church, what God is doing in us, and that means that there's, as if New Hope is your church home, then there's some accountability that comes with this message in our responsiveness to what God is saying to us this morning. And, and so as, as we, we look at one of the things that, that I've talked about, and in fact, it's based really from 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is the one verse I want to start with. In fact, let me read that. Says, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Uh, the, old has, uh, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. I want to start with that because I have said this and I'm convinced that this is something the Lord is saying to us. God is not remodeling new hope. He's reinventing us. The difference between those two is drastic. When you and I come to Jesus, he doesn't remodel our lives. He completely transforms and changes who we are. And the same thing is true for his church as we continue to follow him. He doesn't just make minor modifications. He doesn't just do a little addition here or a little upgrade there. He takes us from the ground up and he rebuilds who we are. To the point where we are a brand new person. That's why Paul says, the old is gone, the new is come. A new creation, completely brand new. And I want you and I to understand that because this year, this process of recreation or reinvention by God is going to be drastically more significant than it has been in our history. Obviously, we're going to make a move that's very historic. Moving to a new building, a building that we're purchasing. No longer will we reside here on a Sunday morning or our offices or our, 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 our main functioning as a church won't be here anymore. But far beyond that, it's not just about a new location. It's about a new understanding of how God is working in us and through us. And I want to talk about this this morning because knowing that we are supposed to be a new creation, that's what Paul says, knowing not only as individual believers, but as a church, God wants us to be new That means that you and I have to come to grips with some of us struggle with, and I know from time to time I struggle with this, I get stuck in the mindset of a remodel. 
That's, I, I do. I think about modifications and slight adjustments and changes here and how to make things better when God says, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm rebuilding who you are from the ground up. Now I know. I've pastored for a while. This is the third church that I've seen you pastored. And I know, and I, this is what goes through many people's minds. There, I think I'm the sixth pastor of this church. And so that usually those of you have been faithful through all the ups and downs of the church history that's happened here. Some of you have the mindset, well, okay, now John Amstutz is here. He's the pastor. He's going to do his thing, just like all the other pastors did their thing. And then when they left, left another pastor came in and did their thing. And that is the worst thing that I could do as a pastor in my tenure here, however long God wants to be. I love to be here for the rest of my ministry career. That's what my desire is. But what, what I want you and I to understand is my hope for our church is that what God is doing is not tied to me. I want you to hear that. That if God keeps me here for five years or he keeps me here for 25 years, that the identity of who we are is not wrapped up in the person who happens to be the senior pastor, but it's wrapped up in who God has called us to be as a church family. It goes on beyond the senior pastor. Because honestly, I'll be really honest with you, I am not good enough for that. And thank the Lord that he is the Lord of the church and none of us have to be. It's his church. And his church is greater than any one leader or any one season or any one person. And so with that, that understanding, there's a, three or four things I want to walk through here to start with where you and I need to shift this mindset, this remodel mindset to a mindset of God's recreating us. Not only as a church family, he's recreating us as individual believers and in what it really means to follow him. This may mean it's changing what you may have historically understood about what it means to follow Jesus because now you're understanding and that's why we took the last 15 months and went through Jesus' teachings in Matthew. Why? So we understand what Jesus says it means to follow him, what that looks like. First thing that you and I have to come to grips with in this concept of being stuck in a remodel is that a remodel is about maintaining our comfort. You and I have to understand when it comes to church, when it comes to following Jesus, there's something about minor adjustments that are a little reassuring because it doesn't mean that I have to do everything. It means I just get to change just a little bit. I can surrender just a little bit. I can change just a little bit here, but I don't have to change everything. I don't have to really buy into that. You know, when, when Jesus walked the earth, he encountered different people who had that mindset. When they encountered Jesus, they thought, if I can add him to what I already know and believe, then I'll be good. Just a little adjustment, a little addition, and I'll be fine. In fact, in Matthew 19, there's a story of a, a man that we've called the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he's, he's, in a sense, he's looking to justify himself, and he asks Jesus the question, how do I inherit, how do I get eternal life? And he thinks he knows the answer already, which is, and Jesus gives him the, initially gives him the answer that he wants to hear, which is, hey, have you kept the law? And so Jesus kind of throws out a number of the laws from the Old Testament, and he's like, yeah, one, two, check, 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 I got it. And you can tell at that moment he's probably feeling really good. And then Jesus says, but you still lack one thing. And the one thing that he lacked was the key to everything. He said, go sell your possessions and give your money to the poor. And then if you know the story, the man, it says the man walked away sad. Why? Because Jesus hit on the one thing that was the key to everything. Because what Jesus was saying to him, it's not about all the rules and regulations. It's about you surrendering everything. And the biggest thing to you is your money and your possessions. And if you can't give that up, you can't really follow me. Because what you're looking for is a remodel. And what I'm investing in is a complete reinvention of who you are. And I want you and I to understand that because so many times in our life, the tension point, the tipping point for us is, is, is really between sacrifice and comfort. 
that really what, when we get down to the bottom line, it's like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Yeah, I want to be a part of mission. Yeah, I want to give generously. I want to do this. I really, and then, then we start to realize what that really looks like specifically because Jesus got so specific with this man and said, it's your money that's going to cost you everything. And Jesus comes along and he hits on the one thing or maybe the two things and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. You can have 90% over here, but you can't have this because if I give up that, I'm not going to be comfortable anymore. Life's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to require sacrifice. I don't know if I want to do that. So you and I settle back in to a simple, comfortable, easy Christianity that doesn't require anything of us other than going to church, maybe reading the Bible, praying a little bit, and giving occasionally. And then we call it Christianity. From what we've seen from what Jesus talked about over the last 15 months, that's not, that's not biblical Christianity. That's an American version of, of Christianity, but it's not what Jesus has said what it means to really follow him. I want to play just a quick video. I've played it before, but I, I go back to this because it, it's, it's kind of funny, but it is so true of how we start with great intentions, and then when we realize what it's going to look like, we continually back away from sacrifice and end up living a comfortable Christian life. Go ahead and take a look at this together. Are we too comfortable? See, that's the progression that many times we follow. We have great intentions, but before we know it, everything that we know is going to make us uncomfortable, we pull away from. Second thing, and I know these are difficult and confronting, but I think it's important for us. We have, to, we have to really move straight forward into what Jesus is saying to us and what he's calling us to. Second thing to, to move kind of beyond the, this, this remodel concept is to understand a remodel is also about maintaining our religion. See, religion is a system that we put together that really is nothing that what Jesus wants for us, but it's a system that's safe and it's tangible and it's understandable and it's something that we can maintain and we can manage and control on our own. In fact, there's a, there's a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that came to Jesus at night because he was a Pharisee, he was a religious leader, and he didn't want to be seen with Jesus during the day. And, and Nicodemus was in this, this quandary. He realized what Jesus was saying was something that he had never really understood before. But he knew there was life in Jesus and he was hungry for it. So when he came to Jesus at night, he's saying, listen, same kind of question as the religious or the, the rich young leader. He, he comes to Jesus and he's really, he's inquiring, what, what do I have to do? How do I get this? And, and how do I get eternal life? And how am I saved? And, and Jesus gives him an answer that he's not ready for. If you know the story, Jesus says, you have to be born again. Now, when Nicodemus heard this, he's coming from this religious mindset. He's thinking, tell me what I have to do. Tell me what requirements I have to live up, what, what, what things I have to do. How do I have to perform? And Jesus says, no, you have to be born again. And he's like, wait, you mean I have to go back into my mom's womb and then come out? He goes, no, you have to be born again of the Spirit. You have to be reinvented from the inside out. And this was a very difficult concept for Nicodemus with a religious mindset because he wasn't about being reinvented. He was about modifying and adding and changing just a little bit. And Jesus hits him right where he's living. And now you and I would say, well, I'm not a religious person. How many times in our culture someone said, well, I'm not religious? We all said, no one says, well, I am really religious. Most people don't say that. Why? Because religion has some negative connotations that go along with it, rightly so, because religion isn't really about God. Religion's about us. It's about a system that we create because we, we have a, a certain way of this is the way Christianity is supposed to be done. This is the way that church is supposed to be done. And all of us have that kind of mindset. And it's something that you and I come up with that we can control, that is safe, that is not uncomfortable, it's easy. And because of that, it becomes religious. And you know it's religious when you get offended when it no longer is present. 
That's when you know that you're religious. When you can't adapt to change because something's always been and it's now it's no longer and you get offended and you pull back, then you know maybe deep down inside there's something religious about your approach to God because you can't change. See, that's why the religious leaders reacted so strongly against Jesus because he came and all the things that they had created, all the systems, all the things that they wanted to be done, Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not what this meant. That's not what the law was about. And they're like, wait a second, all the things that we've held on to all this time, now you're saying we shouldn't? And you and I, we become religious. And, I, and I've encountered this in so many different areas and sometimes even surprisingly in my own life. But as, as a pastor of churches, you, you see when you finally hit that person, where you hit somebody right where you know that for them, you finally found their definite definition of their religious system and how it's supposed to work. When we were pastoring in Ventura, there was a season of time where I felt because the need for community and the need for relationship and connection in our church family, we made a shift and it was a major shift. We took out chairs like this and we put in tables for Sunday morning. And we did it for a couple of years. And we talked about this with, the, with uh, the church family and I talked with our leadership and we prayed about it and we felt like, yeah, you know, it's a risk. People coming in, visitors walking in. In fact, I remember some visitors walking in and they look at me like, they said, is this your sanctuary? They're like, isn't this like the fellowship hall? I'm like, no, this is the sanctuary. And they're like, oh, no, those were Christians. Non-Christians that walked in, they didn't have a problem with it. Isn't that interesting? So I remember we, we, we did this, we processed through it, and finally when we pulled the trigger on it, we had talked about it for months. We had people leave the church. In fact, we had a council member leave the church. And he was all on board, and every meeting he was all for it. And then when we pulled the trigger, he calls me and says, my wife and I just can't do this. I said, what do you mean you can't do this? He goes, you're not supposed to have Sunday morning church around tables. I'm like, what? Where in the Bible do you get that? Because it's too uncomfortable. People aren't going to like that. They actually have to talk to each other. I'm like, oh, God forbid, right? Now, some of you are thinking, man, are we going to come next week and there's going to be tables in here? Some of you are like, oh, no. And others are like, yes. Wouldn't that be cool? Kind of like pancake breakfast on steroids. Wouldn't that be awesome? It was pretty cool because when we did that, we did communion around tables. You actually had to confess your sin to the person you were sitting across from. Whoa, wait a second. That's too much. See, I discovered what the religious system this person had. It wasn't intentionally trying to offend anybody, just trying to respond to what God was doing in our church. There's been a lot of change over the last two years. There's been a lot of things that have disappeared. And there's a lot of been, if you probably have noticed, there's been people who have disappeared with those things. Church, we have, we have reduced our attendance, but I'm not afraid. Because most of the transitions that we've had are people that are consumer-driven. They were here because there was a certain product or service that was offered, and once the product and service was offered, they weren't really committed to Jesus, so they went somewhere else where they could find that. I'm being really honest and really blunt, so I'm like, really? You're saying that? Yeah. I've pastored long enough. I've seen it so many times. So our faithfulness has to be to who? Jesus. And being willing to confront the areas where we're struggling with, this re, with the remodel and recreation. So the third thing about the remodel is that the remodel really has to do with maintaining our agendas. So whether you believe it or not, you have an agenda. We all have an agenda. And when it comes to church, we all have agendas. We all think that there are certain things about the way churches should be done. We talked, just talked about tables and things like that. And we all have this idea, and there's usually one or two things. Those things have to be present. If they're not present, then it's not really church. Did you know that Peter had an agenda for Jesus that didn't match Jesus' agenda? And it came out all the time. 
Peter had this idea when Jesus came, why he came, what he came for, and what it was going to look like when he became king. And it didn't match up to what Jesus came to do. And you see that many times. In fact, what's crazy is crazy. And if you read through in Matthew chapter 16, you see the, these things in 15 and 16. You see Peter encountering Jesus, and Jesus gets together with his disciples and says, Hey, who do people say that I am? Some say a prophet, some say Elijah. And then Peter says, You are Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Hey, Peter, you didn't get that one on your own. Like he's saying, Peter, that wasn't your agenda. That's the Father's agenda. And then you keep reading, and it's not more than, what, a few verses later? Jesus says, Oh, by the way, I have to go to the cross and die. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. You can't die. And do you remember what Jesus' response to Peter was? Oh, Peter, that's just, you're a little misinformed. No, he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why would Jesus say something so strongly to Peter? Because Peter revealed his agenda for Jesus. His agenda was Jesus was going to be the political Messiah that would come and overthrow the Romans and reestablish Israel's kingdom on earth. That's what Peter had in his mind. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom's a lot bigger than that. See, you and I don't realize that we have agendas until we're confronted with it. That we have to have this specific thing, otherwise it's not church. Now we know we have to honor Scripture, and we have to follow Jesus, and we have to have theology, and we have to understand those things. But a lot of times it's all the stuff that surrounds that that we think, oh, I have to have that. And I've said this before, when people come to our church, and they've been a few times and have conversations, I can start to pick up agendas right away. People reveal it by what they think. I've had so many people in my time as pastor and will come to me after service. Oh, pastor, you know, we really need this. Or we should have that. Let me just talk about a few things. This is interesting. This is interesting. Do we have to have a cross in our building to follow Jesus? No, we don't. I said this. When I got here, the cross was over there, wasn't it? Do we have to have a cross in our building? No. But if we're going to have a cross in our building, it has to be the center. Is that because it says in the scripture? No, because it's a reminder to us Jesus is not an addition. He's the foundation. He's the center. So if we go to the new building, by the way, I'm not planning to do this, and there's no cross, Jesus is still on the throne. When I pastored in Ventura, we went for a long time. We didn't have a cross in our building. I had people leave the church. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, well, it has to have a cross. Otherwise, it's not a church. What? None of the New Testament churches had a cross. You know why they didn't? Because the cross to them was the sign of the most horrific execution a human being could experience. Over time, cross, the cross became a symbol of who Jesus is, his death and resurrection, which is a great reminder to us. But we get hung up on that. In, our, in my history as a pastor, I've had, I'm not picking on any particular group, but I've had women come to me and say, oh, pastor, we have to have a women's Bible study. We do? Oh, yeah, you have to have a women's Bible study. Women need, learn differently than the men, and they need their own study. And they need one during the week for moms, and they need one in the evening for w- women that work. You have to have a women's Bible study. And we went through, in Newburgh, we actually killed our women's Bible study because, it, honestly, no offense to women, it was the most toxic ministry in our church. And we did. We had to kill it. And we lost people over it. They went somewhere else where they could have a women's Bible study. What is it for you? I, I, maybe I'm not touching on it. It's a new believer's course. Uh, someone gets saved, we've got to put them in a class for 12 weeks. Isn't that what Jesus did? Now, I know I'm, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, okay? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The reason I'm hitting on these things is the New Testament church didn't have any of them. And last time I checked, they pit, did a pretty good job. Because the New Testament church is what expanded the gospel to regions all over the place. It was the apostles that Jesus invested his life in. And you and I need to take a step back when we start saying, well, I have to have this, and this has to be true. And by the way, I don't have an agenda of all the things I'm going to bring and change in the next year. Like, oh, wow. But just understand, what is it for you? 
And if it becomes a rub for you, take a step back and say, is that my agenda that I'm trying to work, or is that really God's agenda? And see, if you and I really understand, what is God's agenda? To make disciples. He didn't say you have to make disciples by having a cross, having a women's Bible study, having a new believers course, having a men's breakfast. He didn't say any of that. He said make disciples. And how we do that is not necessarily about his agenda. That's about how we feel like we can follow in obedience to be most effective in our culture to make disciples of people who follow Jesus. So we can't get hung up on all the things that we think we're supposed to have when we know really what we're about is making disciples. So... Moving from that, so maybe some of us now we can get that mindset of God, I need to move beyond this remodel concept, and I really need to embrace the, the recreative process that God is working in us as individuals in our church. And so I want to touch on four things that, that really you and I have to understand about what that looks like for us, and then some practical outcomes for us, our church. So the first thing in this is that God is recreating us and understanding that that means that we are, we are in a transition period, a shift from a number of areas to other very important areas. The first thing is this. Recreation is moving from maintenance to mission. Understand this is really important. So there's the old. What's the old mindset for church? What's the new, which is really the old mindset, the old, old mindset. But the, the, the old mindset that most of us function in is church is an inward focus trying to maintain what's best for me. Is, is Do this to the church have the ministries that I want? Is my chair comfortable? Is the climate right? Is the carpet clean? Do I get what I want on Sunday morning? That's, that's what normally the church has been probably the last 30 years in America. It's been driven by how do we look at people who come to church as customers or consumers. Make sure they have parking where they want it. Make sure that the service isn't too long because they won't come back if you go too long. All these things have driven the church. What is really the new way or really the old way, the way that Jesus used to do it, is an outward focus. Not an inward focus. It's about how do I learn to live without things or learn to sacrifice things in order for us to best serve our community and reach people and make disciples. It's a complete shift. And in fact, it's the very thing that Jesus demonstrated he did for you and I, he calls to do for other people. Famous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Anybody heard that verse before? What does it mean? It means that the God of the universe loved us so much, he gave his best to us at his own personal cost. He didn't wait for you and I to get our act together. He initiated, he came after us because his heart is mission. His heart is to reach out. And if you and I begin to, to think about that for a moment, there's, there's a shift. How do we give the best away? How do we invest in our community and our world? How do we keep what's less important or maybe less valuable for ourselves and invest what's best for our community? That means we have to be willing to give up things. We have to be willing to give up our comfort. We have to be willing to give up things that maybe we become accustomed to. I think I've told the story. I had a, a friend when I was growing up, and, and we, had, we were playing basketball one day, and I had a, an apricot tree in my backyard, and that, that became my kind of adopted tree. I was always making sure I was okay. And for the first three or four years, it never, it never bore any fruit, none whatsoever. And finally, I think like the fourth year, I had like three apricots on it. That's it, three. Two of them fell off, and then there was one left. And when we were playing basketball one day, and my friend, we finished, and he was kind of hot and sweaty and kind of hungry, he walked over to the tree, and he pulls the one apricot off, and he eats it. I seriously wanted to kill him right there. 
And I laid in, I'm like, that is the only one left. I worked for four years for that one thing, and in 30 seconds, you devoured it. You idiot. I was so mad at him. And he's like, it was pretty good. It's like, (laughs) great. But that's been the historic kind of mindset of the church, not just our church, the church. I keep the best for myself, and then whatever's left over, I invest in the community. What if we reversed it? What if the one thing was most, the one apricot we give to the community? That's why when we move to the new building, it's going to be really tight and cozy. We're in 32,000 square feet right now. We're moving to 12. That's small. But you know what that means? We save a ton of money on buildings so that we can invest in our community. We can give away the best if we make this shift. So some practical things for us. So as we make this, this transition from this building to the runway building, we are changing our vehicle. Remember, this is not the destination. This is, please don't ever refer to our building as the church home. Our home is with Jesus. The building that we meet in, that's the vehicle he's using to facilitate his mission in our community. So we're moving to a new vehicle, keeping that mindset. So when we move into something smaller, that's a little more cramped, that maybe doesn't have everything that we want, because I know we all really want an industrial-sized kitchen, don't we? Commercial kitchen, right? Those of you who've been here forever, that's like, can we have a kitchen? Can we have a kitchen? Maybe down the line we can have a kitchen. But being willing to, what, Delay those things or give those things away so that we can make sure that we're focused on mission. Partnering with places like the Samaritan Center. And in, in the Samaritan Center is going through a, a wonderful transition right now that Betty's helping facilitate with moving to more church partnership and, and really using the community to be the resource for our community and using the church to meet the needs of people, not just laying that burden all on the Samaritan Center. And also thinking about mission. Here's the thing. For some of us, maintaining our comfort has been so important that we have ridden off the opportunities that God has given to you and I. You just heard about it on on the 411. Next Sunday, there's an opportunity to consider going one of three places in mission outside right here this next year. Haiti, Brazil, and the Dream Center, L.A. Now, L.A. might be as far away as Haiti to you because you're like, that's a whole other world out there. But I want you to just think about this for a moment. The default for most of us is, I can't do that. And we'll come up with an excuse. Can't afford it. Can't get time off work. Man, I can't be away from my family. And deep down inside, you know what the real answer is? I'm scared to death. I have found that when I am afraid, I will find any excuse in the book. But when God infuses me and challenges me, there is no obstacle that's too great to get over. There are many of you sitting here right now that you should be in this next year on one of those three teams. Going down to L.A. for a week, working inner city, going down to the project, seeing whole side of our city or our community that you've never seen before. Going to Haiti, which is hardcore, one of the most difficult physical trips that you take. And going to Brazil, going to a place where you're going to help people who are dealing with a, a physical handicap that they can't function without the wheelchairs that you're going to bring in. These are opportunities. Change your default from no to yes. Make God have to put the brakes on you. Don't put the brakes on yourself. Go to one of those meetings next Sunday. Discover what God may be doing in this next year for you. Second thing of God recreating us is that this shift is from consumption to contribution. And this is a huge shift. The old mindset is church is where I go to get my needs met. The new mindset is church is where I go to meet the needs of others. This is a huge shift. And I've mentioned this before. If you are a follower of Jesus, you no longer have the right to go to church and go for the sole purpose of having your needs met. 
Your greatest need has already been met. Your soul is saved. You've been forgiven. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You and I have lost the right to come into a church gathering and say, okay, what's in it for me? When you and I have that mindset, we usually end up very disappointed. When we come in and say, what's in it for them? What's in it for God? How do I serve? How do I give myself away? You find yourself being far more fulfilled. I know. Think about consumerism never delivers on what it promises. It doesn't. It never does. It does for a fleeting moment. Just like when you make the big purchase and it's going to be the end all and you're going to love it and it's going to be wonderful. And that euphoria lasts for what? A day, a week, maybe. And then you realize, ah, oh, it's not all that I thought it was. But when you and I learn to give ourselves away, it's living like Paul talked about in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also, or but each of you, to the interests of the others. Thinking about other people. You need to understand this. This is one of the things that always baffles me. When it comes to being a part of a community group or serving kids or doing something, there's, uh, the, the, the default is uh, somebody is more gifted, somebody has more time, somebody goes, goes and does that. Not realizing if you're a follower of Jesus, somebody's discipleship depends on you. You understand that. Jesus didn't just bring you to him to give you eternal life and have fire insurance. He gave you for a purpose and a mission. And that means if you're part of his family, the person next to you or the person in your community group or the person that you know, their discipleship depends on your relationship with them because God wants to use you to help them follow him better. And I've said it before. In fact, John Looney put together this funny thing I should have brought out here. I've used the term, it's an all-skate those of you used to go to roller rinks, you know, when it's an all-skate, it's not just for experts or backwards or whatever. It's everybody, no matter your ability, how great or how small, everybody's on the rink. Everybody gets to skate. That's the church. That's ministry. That's what it is. And other people, whether you know it, they depend on you. So you and I no longer, once you say yes, you, just, you know, I don't have the right to say, ah, somebody else's responsibility. It's our responsibility. You and I have to shift our mentality. The church is not like going to a Dodger game. Okay, let me use this analogy because for our culture, sometimes it becomes that. For even believers, it is. So you've been to a Dodger game. Anyone been to a Dodger game? Okay, whatever sport it is. Okay, you go to a Dodger game. It, the parking's tough. You've got to get there early. You've got to fight your way. Nobody really has a good attitude. People are fighting over parking spaces. It's really the crush you get in the stadium if you're like the typical person in Southern California. You don't get there to like the second or third inning. You know what I'm talking about? So you're trying to get in, and then the lines to get food are really long, and then you get in there, and, and you're cramped sitting next to other people, and, and you're trying to enjoy the game, and then some guy, you know, two seats over has had too many beers, and he's yelling, and he's cussing, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're eating all this food, and there's no place to put trash. So you just put it there, and at the end of the game, which is you for you like the seventh inning you get up and you start leaving to beat the traffic and you go home and the whole time your whole your whole focus has been on who yourself so you've gone and you've contributed nothing you've left a mess behind you had an attitude in the process because it was crowded and that's the dodger game that becomes the church i get in i want to sit where i want to sit i want to make sure the parking is where i want it to be who somebody else, the church should clean up my mess, right? I love that video. Well, have somebody at the church do it. They didn't get paid to do that, right? <laughs> but I want you and I to shift. That's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the community of believers that come together, that not only share resources, but we build up each other and we look at each other and say, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I support you? How can I invest in you? If we're all doing that, 
That's why one of the, the trends overall, I don't know if you noticed it, we have done less. We don't talk about putting your prayer requests on Connect cards anymore. It's not because we don't value prayer or value what people are going through. It's because I want somebody who knows you praying for you. Seriously, when I first got here, the staff would take two hours almost every week and go through 200 to 300 prayer requests and try to figure out who's going to pray, who's going to follow up. Why? Because the staff was paid for that. That's not even biblical. Did you know that Connect Cards and we're writing our prayer requests for somebody who doesn't know us to pray for is not even biblical? Because they prayed for each other because they sat in the same room in the early church in the book of Acts and they said, this is what I'm going through. And somebody knew their story. And somebody could ask later, hey, how are you doing? Or how can I support you? See, if you and I start to understand that, that's what a community group is. You've heard us talk about community groups. One of the elements of community groups is praying together. And I've said this before. A majority of people who are in, in community groups, they never come to me to have me pray for them. You know why? Their community group is already doing it. And there are the community group is the only one that's making a phone call, shooting an email, following up. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Second point of contact during the week. All that. Why? Because we're being the church. It's a shift. And if you've gone through a line, which will come up again the first week of February, a line is kind of this orientation to the gospel. And if I understand the truth of the gospel, that means it is no longer about me because Jesus has already saved me, but it's about what he wants to do through me. Then there's this understanding that I look outward. Part of the discipleship process is too. In February, we'll have the first class that we're going to offer called Discipleship Essentials. The, life, the first one is the life of a disciple. We're going to go through and talk about in, those, in a class that, that really we're going to go again revisiting the teachings of Jesus through Matthew in a more in-depth way in a class setting to make sure that we understand this is what it means to follow Jesus. All these things are going to be, be coming our way. So I know this is a tough message. It's hard to swallow, but this is the shift that God's bringing. Two more things. This, this shift towards God recreating us also means we have to shift from, shift from church-centered to kingdom-focused. Okay, this is a shift. The old mindset is this. Now, this is going to sound really weird. The old mindset is, I got to get people to go to church. That's the mindset. The new mindset, the new creation, I got to get people to experience the kingdom. It's completely different. Historically, what do we do? We try to invite our friends who don't know Jesus to come to church. So especially Easter and Christmas, those are the big ones, right? Got to get them, you know, those churchgoers, they'll, they'll come, you know what I mean? Those people in the community, they'll come. So, and that's not a bad thing. But the reality is if someone's going to really come to know Jesus, they're going to come to know Jesus because of a person, not a service. And the danger in services is when we do an invitation, someone raises their hand and then they walk out the door, they think that they know Jesus, but all they've done is responded to some kind of plea in a service. They haven't really made the commitment yet because the commitment has nothing to do with what happens here. It has what happens when you're in your house, when you're at your job, when you're living your life on Monday. That's the commitment to follow Jesus. But the beauty is that Jesus, the King, is not contained by a Sunday morning gathering. He is everywhere. He is on your street, he's in your house, he's at your workplace, he's at your school. He's present for us to encounter. And here's the danger. Let me read a, a passage of scripture that is a good reminder, kind of sobering, but a good reminder when we have this mindset of trying to just get people to go to a church experience and do religious activities as opposed, as opposed to really knowing the king of the kingdom and Jesus and living it out. Here's the danger. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, Jesus' own words. He says, the kingdom of heaven, or excuse me, 
This is the value that he's trying to place on the kingdom that you and I need to understand. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went with his joy, went and sold all that he had and brought, bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Do you notice what Jesus wasn't talking about? He wasn't talking about the church. The most valuable thing to that person is the kingdom of God, is God's presence, God's power, God's healing, God's forgiveness, God's salvation. All those things were the most important thing, not necessarily going to church. I want you and I to understand that because sometimes we get so stuck in if we could just get people to church. I've come up with this understanding. If somebody goes to church, there's a danger they may never know Jesus. But if they know Jesus, they will always find their way to church. Do you know that? The greatest tragedy is for someone to go to church and never find Jesus. And it happens. The last thing that we ever want to do to somebody is church them. You know, we use the term, have you heard, heard the term unchurched? Please don't be churched. That's the worst thing possible. Because being churched means being religious. To me, it does. I want someone to come to church. Why? Because they know who Jesus is and they want to be with a community of believers that's moving forward on God's mission. Now, non-believers walk into a church. That's great. But our goal is not to get people in the building. And the reason why is when you think about this, the old mindset and the new mindset have a completely different paradigm of success. The old paradigm of getting people to come to church has one focus of success. And you know what it is? It's a number. It is. How many people did we get to come to church? How many people came to Easter? How many people came to Christmas? What's the number? Success. No. What is true success when it has to do with mission? It's not a number. It's a name. It's an individual person. It's a person that you know, a person that you're discipling, a person that you're investing. That is success. Jesus is the God of the universe who walked this planet for 33 to 35 years, and he had how many disciples? Anybody want to take a guess? He had 12. He had some other followers that started to follow as he rose from the dead, like, hey, wow, this, is, this guy's for real. But who did he invest in? Twelve. When someone came to just said, hey, who are your disciples? He's, oh, the masses. I, he, I fed 5,000 one time. Never would say that. He'd say, let me give you their names. All twelve. Judas, we know, obviously, turned his back. That was success for Jesus. Jesus needed to invest his life in 12 people. Why? Because those 12 people invested their lives, and we have the church 2,000 years later because of those people. Success in mission and discipleship is a name. It's the person that I know, that I know that they're following Jesus, and I'm trying to help them to do that. love that video we played earlier. I want you just to invest in an individual. Whoa, that person's weird. Yeah, even the weird people get to know Jesus. Isn't that crazy? It's like things like laundry love. We just started our fourth laundry love, but you know that? So we have four community groups there and four laundromats. There's another church doing laundry love. Of the eight laundromats in Simi Valley, five of them have laundry loves now. That's awesome. It is, it is cool because the point of laundry love is not to pay for laundry. The point of laundry love is relationship. It's spending an hour or two in a laundromat once a month, and yeah, helping somebody monetarily, but it's the time that you have to talk to them, to get to know them, to know their story, to build relationship with them that changes everything. You know, there's another thing I'll throw out, and this is this last point, and then the worship team will join us as we close, is uh, getting to know our neighbors is so important. We've talked about the shift. We no longer do a harvest party at the church or a harvest festival. We do garage parties at our home because we know that we're present when our neighbors come to our door. 
We build a relationship. There's a really cool app called Nextdoor. It's on a website, too. If you don't know your neighbors, go see if there's a network. It's like Facebook for your neighborhood. The one somewhat redeeming quality of Facebook is that it creates connection. So I'm joking. Some of you know my take on Facebook, okay? But Nextdoor is set up that way. I set one up for our neighborhood. I set up with like 100 houses. I only have 10 so far, but there's 10 people that now are connecting with each other that weren't connecting before. And you can do it really easily. You can go set up. You can go on to nextdoor.com, and you can find out, is there a network for my community? John and Denise Looney found that, and they've already had like, I think they got connected with a couple neighbors right through that. They got to know people who really want to make connection. Let me close with this, and then the worship team will join us. The last thing of this recreation is shifting from corporate to personal. The old mindset is, we make the statement, I belong to a church that does missions. Our church is great. We do this in the community. We do this globally. It's great. That's the old mindset. The new mindset is this. We make statements like, I'm living a life that's on mission. Oh, yeah, by the way, I happen to go to New Hope. What's first? Your personal life. See, the, the shift for us is moving in this mindset from a church that does missions to a church that's made up of a bunch of missionaries. We are missionaries, whether you want, want to be or not. You don't even have to go to any other part of the world to be a missionary. Culturally, there's been such a dramatic shift that we are now the minority, and the culture does not speak Christianese anymore. We're missionaries. We have to learn our culture. We have to understand our culture. So where we're at, where we're planted, and, and the reason this is important for you and I to understand is because this whole thing, God will not someday, when you stand before him at judgment, he's not going to care what church you went to. He's not going to care all the great things that your church did or where your church was located or how big the building was or how many people came on Easter. He is not going to care about that. He's going to care about you and your salvation, but he's going to ask you, now that you're saved, let me ask you this question. What did you do with your life? What did you do with I give you? And he's looking for one answer. I made disciples. Not, I went to a church that made disciples. No, I, I made disciples. And you might be able to come up with two or three and say, yeah, you know what? The coolest thing I've talking about this, someday, can you imagine standing in the throne room of heaven, looking across the room and saying, I had an impact in that person's life. They're standing before Jesus for eternity because I invested in them. I want you to think about that. I won't read the passage, but in Matthew 7, Jesus says, there's going to be people that stand before me and say, hey, Lord, Lord, I, I did this and I did that. And, and he's going to say, I, I don't even know you. Because he's looking for what's personal, not what you and I can do as far as performance. Let me, let me close with this. And again, I want to underscore the importance of, I mean, there's community groups and all kinds of things that are going on that we can be a part of. And I'm going to encourage you because, again, it's an all-skate that we're all involved. But community groups are important in that they will, oh, ideally, a community group should be a group of missionaries that gets together for prayer support, reading scripture, learning and growing together in Jesus. And then they go out and they serve their world. It's not a small group that does a service project. That's not a community group. It's, that's what some of our take is on it. It's about living a life. Stepping into a laundromat is the first step into maybe stepping into your neighbor's lives. For some people, it scares you to death to go talk to a stranger. But maybe if you can talk to a stranger in a laundromat, you can talk to the stranger that lives next door to you. And you can begin to build a relationship. God has you where you're at on purpose. You didn't pick where you're going to live. Paul makes it pretty clear in Acts 17. We don't pick where we live. God orchestrates the times and the places where we should live so that all men, all people may reach out to him and find him. You live where you live, whether you like it or not, because God wants you there. This is so important. Let me just tell this brief story. So it was probably, I don't know, it was this last year. 
Kim happened to be not feeling one day, and she never, hardly ever misses church, but she was at home on a Sunday morning. Her mom came over to see how she was doing, and her mom went out to get something from the car, only to find a woman down on the sidewalk right in front of our house with a guy doing CPR to try to revive her. So Kim's mom calls 911, and paramedics show up. Everybody's coming out of their houses. They're trying to resuscitate. The sad thing is the woman didn't make it. She was walking her dog right in front of her house and literally dropped dead. Her, house, her heart just stopped beating right there. Long story short is over the next week or so, we found her, her daughter had come back down to the front of our house to kind of see where her mom had died. And so we happened to be driving in our driveway one night. We saw her, we went over and started talking to her, talking about what she'd gone through. And, and then as a result of that, she said, you're a pastor? And I said, yeah, I'm a pastor. She goes, well, I, you know, she's trying to navigate where is... She doesn't really understand who God is and how does this work. And so Kim and I had her over one night. And we talked to her about God. And, and then she said, would you, would you be willing to be a part of my mom's memorial? I'm like, absolutely, I'd love to. So I got to be in a room of about 300 people, 250 to 300 people, and 75% of them didn't even know who God was. And guess what I talked about? The gospel. And then from that, subsequently, I've gotten to know her dad who lives up the street. And we've had these long conversations about that they knew somehow, even though in the tragedy of the loss of his wife and his, his, his daughter's mother, and that, the ha- that she happened to drop dead in front of a pastor's house could not be a coincidence. And we've had this ongoing dialogue. And they don't know Jesus yet, but I pray for him every week. And there's been times when I'm driving home and I see him walking his dog and he's a block away and I will literally find things to delay myself in front of my house. Like I'm picking up trash that's not there. Seriously, so that when he just happens to walk by with his dog, I'm like, hey, how are you? We did, about, about a month ago, we had like a 45-minute conversation about God, church, religion. Oh, thank God, thank God that you chose this house for us because you knew that she was going to die in front of this house. And you knew that her daughter and her husband needed to know you. That's why we're here. Now, you don't have to have somebody drop dead in front of your house. I hope it doesn't happen. But you're where you are for a reason. If you and I will begin to open our eyes and realize I am a missionary to my neighborhood, then God has called me to know my neighbors. God has called me to reach out. God has called me to build relationship. Why? So that God can use those to open the door for God to enter people's lives. And then you become the discipler. You become the one that helps them follow Jesus. And then we become the church that God wants us to be. Not because of what we do in our programs and where we meet. It's because who we are as individuals. The church is people. And the church is only as good as its people in following Jesus. And that's who we want to be. We want to be a church defined by who we are, not what we do, not who the pastor is or where we meet, but who we are. We should be labeled by who God calls us to be. So let me close in prayer, and then the worship team will join us for one last song. Lord Jesus... We ask that you would move deep within us this season and this year to be embracing of the change that you want to be bring. And Lord, I know that this, if we're really thinking seriously about what you're calling us to, there's a sense of fear that kind of comes in that this is hard, this is difficult, this is new, it's different, it's a change, it's a shift. And I, Lord, that reservation I know can only be overcome by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Jesus, you told us that when you asked us to make disciples in Matthew 28, when you commanded us, you said something so important to us. And you said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Which means when you said, 
Be about my mission. Be about making disciples. Don't be about yourself. Live for me. Live beyond yourself. When you said that to us, you said that you would never leave us and you would never forsake us. You would always be present, empowering us to go beyond our ability to walk out on water that scares us to death, to have courage beyond our fears. And so, Lord, my prayer for our church in this year, that you would break through the fear that we have, the fear of sacrifice, the fear of not having our needs met, the fear of discomfort, all those things, Lord, that we would be brave because you ultimately are the one who makes us brave. So, Lord Jesus, help us today as we move forward from here to move forward into this year with courage to accomplish what you've called us to do because, Lord, our community and our world is at stake. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.